At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone but not just anyone alma is there to help you find the right fit visit helloalma.com therapy 30 to schedule a free consultation today that's helloalma.com therapy 30 knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling meeting new friends or just even to master a new skill but it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes that's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, July 7th, 2023. In this week's episode, prosecutors announced their intention to seek the death penalty against Brian Koberger, the man charged with four counts of murder in the University of Idaho slayings. Also, according to court documents, Delphi murder suspect Richard Allen allegedly confessed to the killings on multiple occasions and jailhouse phone calls to his wife. But first, a not guilty verdict for Scott Peterson after he was accused of neglect in the line of duty during the fatal Parkland school shooting. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Rachel Kaufman, a criminal defense attorney recognized as one of Atlanta's top trial lawyers. Rachel is also a legal analyst you can catch on Court TV and many other outlets. Rachel, welcome back to the show. So happy to be here. Happy Friday. But happy now Friday. It'll be Tuesday, but yeah. It, it'll be Tuesday, but happy Friday for us. Good to see you. Uh, um, for listeners who are not familiar from the last time you were on the show, can you tell us a little bit about your current practice? Sure. Um, I am a solo practitioner in Atlanta, Georgia. I primarily focus in Fulton County and DeKalb County, which, encom- which encompasses Atlanta. Um, I handle mostly serious violent felonies. Um, lately, I've been handling a lot of mental health cases, the intersection of mental health and uh, criminal justice. And then I also, uh, my favorite thing to do is I work with a program called Canine Cellmates. It's about restorative justice. And we uh, get guys out of jail and they train shelter dogs. And I'm just all about that. It's all the things that my normal day-to-day fighting with the prosecutors is not. 
<laughs> right. That's Gives my favorite little... part, and it's all volunteer. So. Oh, that's very cool. It gives you a break from all of that, I'm sure. Absolutely. Well, we are going to call upon your vast experience, and I know that you follow these cases closely, so we're very curious to hear your thoughts. Um, so let's jump right in. We'll go to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where after 19 hours of deliberation, a Florida jury has acquitted former Sheriff's Deputy Scott Peterson on all charges related to his response in the fatal Parkland school shooting. Peterson, who was a school resource officer assigned to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on the day of Nicholas Cruz's mass shooting, faced seven counts of felony child neglect for the four students who were killed on the third floor and three who were wounded, along with misdemeanor counts of negligence and one count of perjury. Notably, Peterson was not charged in connection with any of the deaths or injuries that occurred on the first floor of the school where Cruz began his shooting rampage. After hearing shots, Peterson responded to the school's classroom building with his gun drawn. However, he alleges that he was unsure of where the gunfire was coming from and sought cover instead of entering the building. Prosecutors claimed that Peterson's evasive actions allowed Cruz to continue shooting, arguing that his failure to intervene prioritized his own safety over that of children that he was in charge of protecting. His defense maintained that Peterson was not in dereliction of duty, arguing that Nicholas Cruz was the only person responsible for the deaths on the third floor of the high school. Ultimately, the jury sided with Peterson, acquitting the former sheriff's deputy on all 11 charges. Rachel, I know you had followed this case closely. I know that you have some pretty strong thoughts on it, but first I want to just ask, was this verdict surprising to you? The verdict was not surprising to me, but it was concerning how, you know, the length of time that they deliberated. I know that there were seven charges. I believe it took like 19 hours. Um, that means someone in there probably wanted to convict him of something. So that did surprise me a little bit, even though it's yeah. human nature, which is, I guess, not the whole like, you know, the umbrella over all of this is that when something terrible happens, when a tragedy happens, we want people to blame and yeah. blaming Nicholas Cruz when he didn't get the death penalty, it just wasn't enough. Um, it's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, but it was over an incredible, you know, people's lives. So I understand yeah. why people now, you know, are looking back retrospectively and looking to blame additional parties. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think this was a very emotionally charged uh, prosecution. There's a lot of frustration shared by many people in this country regarding these mass shootings, especially taking places at schools. So you can understand uh, anybody taking any kind of effort to see what they can do to try to stop this. Um, but legal analysts um, nearly across the board that I saw seem to agree that, um, first of all, this was a case first of its kind in the country, very novel theory of criminal liability. Um, do you think that trying to extend criminal liability, and, and that's an important distinction to make here, we're not talking about civil liability, but criminal liability, holding somebody responsible in a way that they could go to prison, do you think that was just simply a bridge too far for these jurors? I think it's a bridge too far for these jurors, given the circumstances. It wasn't as though he was escorting one child, you know, to the restroom or something and the gunman popped out of, you know, popped out and he threw the kid in front of him so that he didn't die. That's not what happened. This right. was like more more of a passive. It's not a heroic move. Again, he's guilty of not being a hero in the moment. 
But my big thing is he's a school resource officer. He looked like he was towards the end of his career. He's at a school that it's not like there's school shootings regularly there. Um, it was just a normal day. I don't think he ever expected as a high school you know, school resource officer, off-duty deputy, that he's going to have to respond um, or be the caretaker. Because I know that's really what it was about, whether he's the caretaker of, you know, those hundreds of kids in the building. That's not that was not his understanding of of his job. And um, in his defense, he didn't know exactly where where the shots were coming from. Criminal intent, it's not there. But I'm sure he feels like a coward. I mean, it's a it's a little cowardly, but we don't know what we would do in that position. Yeah. We don't know what you'd do. Yeah, you you know you you hear responses to this verdict from the parents uh, who lost their children in that shooting, and your heart goes out to them, and they're they're so lost and so frustrated and so heartbroken, and um, you can understand why they would feel like you know what more could have been done and when you see the video uh, and i remember i felt the same way when you saw the video of this officer and it appears as though he's just kind of protecting himself um you can understand kind of their their initial reaction to it um but i but i agree with you that we're, we're talking about criminal liability here again and i i focus on that is that you know at what point do we do we decide that you're right, this person may have acted cowardly and that may be a crime morally, but it is, is it a crime itself? And that's really what the question was in front of the jurors. And unfortunately for these parents, I do think that the verdict um, and the jury here got it right as far as how the landscape of the law currently is. But a lot of... Um, People around the country were watching this, and I imagine especially authorities in Uvalde, Texas, where we know uh, there was another incredibly tragic shooting that took place there. And it's in that case, it's alleged that officers waited over an hour um, after the shooting had started taking place before they finally entered the building. I, I, and I want and you to try. Yeah, I want you to try. What, do you think this case is distinguishable? Do you think that the Uvalde uh, folks will still proceed with a prosecution? How do you think this verdict may affect that investigation? Well, I guess that I actually think it's kind of an opportunity for the Uvalde prosecutors to learn what didn't work here. Um, I, I feel like also the facts and the circumstances under which they did not enter the building or do anything reasonable and we're not talking about high school we're talking about kids so it's i mean it's just completely different circumstances there's not i don't think there were multiple floors they knew exactly that there was they knew that there was somebody in the building which it sounds like uh, scott peterson wasn't sure if it where exactly it was coming from i mean for him to go chase and attack um an enemy that he didn't he couldn't identify it's, it's a lot to ask in a structure like um like parkland it, I think it's a, a much different situation, but I do think I do think the prosecutors are going to have to deal with the fact that we don't want to blame officers. We don't blame officers when they respond to, you know, uh, crimes. Nine one one, they respond, you know, to calls, and they don't do enough. They don't get charged criminally. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's a slippery slope, but I do think that some facts are egregious enough um, that warrant it. Yeah, I, I, there's no clear line here. I, I don't think there's an absolute answer on this conduct is bad and that conduct is okay. 
But I think that I, I do think that you can distinguish Uvalde from what took place here because of the time. And that and that I think that is an important point. That it's not the idea that waiting at all is not a problem. But in in this in the instance in Parkland, he waited what I understood from what I heard about the case is that he waited a matter of minutes and in that time lives were lost tragically, but that the shooter had actually left the building. Uh, shortly after he had arrived on scene, the officer, I mean. Whereas in Uvalde, we know that there were still shots going on during that hour-long period. And I think you can say, okay, this isn't about just waiting alone, but it's about at some point, you're right, it does become a dereliction of duty. And at some point, you do, as an officer, as a sworn peace officer carrying a weapon, you do have a duty to do something because inaction can lead to the further loss of lives you know the other the other point and i wanted to hear your thoughts on this is there was a lot of assumption in the parkland case that had he entered the building he could have somehow prevented these deaths that's assuming a lot that's assuming exactly. that he if only if only i wish he could right. but i don't think that that's a likely scenario quite honestly and I do feel like um, the victims in the Parkland in the Parkland shooting case have reason to be mad at more than Nicholas Cruz. And I've been I said that from the beginning It's why I didn't believe that he would get the death penalty, that they would, you know, find him eligible for the death penalty and take it there. It's because so many people knew that he was not right. They weren't surprised when they heard that he went in there and shot up a school. Like if you know someone who you would not be surprised if they went in and killed a bunch of people, and you have some ability to like, I don't know, point them out to police, catch the ball. So yeah. many people didn't catch the ball in Nicholas Cruz's case. Um, Peterson being, I guess, one of them. But again, the ball came at a million miles an hour and they didn't keep coming that long. So he couldn't have prepared himself to catch them. It would have been so different if he, if he like in attempting to confront, um, confront the shooter just hid. Yeah. That didn't yeah. happen either. So, no, you're right. There's there's no one simple answer of of many missteps, I think, led to this. And there's not one simple answer of what could have been done to have prevented all of it. And uh, I hope that people listening don't interpret anything that you and I are saying is that we don't share in that frustration, even to the point of disgust. Yeah. That, that something wasn't done beforehand to have prevented this. I just think... From a legal perspective, this prosecution was was misguided in its efforts. But we'll see what happens in Uvalde. We'll obviously keep track of that one. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got 
you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Moving on to uh, Delphi, Indiana, um, where new court documents released in the Delphi murders revealed shocking allegations in the state's case against defendant Richard Allen. Allen, who was arrested in October of 2022, has been charged with two counts of murder for the deaths of Abby Williams, 13, and Libby German, 14. The girls' bodies were found near a remote hiking trail in Delphi, Indiana, in February of 2017. According to court documents, Allen allegedly confessed to the crimes more than five times in conversations with his wife, and his mother while using public jail phones. Allen's defense has argued that the confessions are not credible due to the man's declining mental and physical state. However, multiple mental health professionals have evaluated Allen and concluded that he was not in need of involuntary medication or a change of protective custody. Authorities allege that Allen threatened the victims with a gun before stabbing them to death. New details um, also released in the court documents allege that articles of of clothing were removed from the victims, including a pair of underwear and socks. Allen has pled not guilty to all charges, and his trial is scheduled to begin in January of next year. All right, Rachel, in your opinion, um, are these confessions admissible? Are they coming in? What's your initial reaction? Yes, they're coming in. Yes, they're coming in. Tell us Um, why. They're coming in because he made he there, there's no marital privilege when you're on a recorded phone, a public recorded phone from jail. That's why they actually warn you while you're on while you're about to get on the phone. They say this this call is recorded. They listen, especially in these kind of cases. They're listening. Now, yeah. we don't know the content yet of exactly what his confession is. You know, the defense may have a better argument if he's just saying, yes, I killed them. You know, that's different than providing details that I guess maybe aren't in the uh, in the public such that we would know. 
So right. if he's if he's confessing to to detailed aspects of the of these crimes that nobody else would know about, there's really not much of a defense. However, you know, if he's just saying, yeah, I did it as sort of a, you know, rolling over and saying, I'm so tired being here under these conditions that I did it. I, I've never had a client um, be in custody and deteriorate to the point where they got on the phone with a loved one and just said, I did it. Yeah. No, one, I don't think any logical person would think that that would help them get out. The level of detail matters here. That's what I'm leading up. And that's a really important point that I want to get into because what you're talking about, um, well, first of all, you alluded to marital privilege, which I want to get into. But first, the the argument that you're making here about the specificity in the confession is important because there's a, a rule called the the corpus cop out rule, and what that essentially says is that you know people for a weird uh, quirk in psychology sometimes confess to things that they didn't do. <clears throat> I'm not saying that's what took place here, but but in order to prevent that. We have to make sure that those confessions are in some way corroborated. And what you're pointing out is that they would have to include some sort of details not known to the public. In other words, there there has to not they have to eliminate the argument that he somehow read about this in the paper and is confessing to what he's read about, but that he has independent knowledge and only the knowledge of somebody having committed these crimes before these confessions would be. Uh, admissible. So you're, you're, you make well, a very important point there. Go ahead. They still may be able to admit them, even if it's not specific, if it's a number of times said different ways. I just I just think also from the perspective of his attorneys, it's unclear what the strategy is going to be. Um, yeah. Are they going at this point? Are they going to is he trying to get them to enter a plea for him? Does he want a guilty plea? Uh, what yeah. mental illness is he really suffering from? Yeah. And I, I think know. this. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. I yeah, and I agree with you. And I think they're kind of laying the groundwork for what that defense might be about his mental state, which is not all that convincing of a defense. But before we get into that, I you, you mentioned marital privilege, and I I wanted to talk a, a little bit about that because it's a really interesting concept in the law. If if you could just kind of explain that for for listeners and. Yes, I know that you you're you're fairly convinced it doesn't apply here, and I I seem to agree with you. I still think it's an argument that, as his defense team, they should probably make. But could you just enlighten us a little bit? So it's just basically that when you're in your marital home or you're in the privacy of your spousal relationship, things that are said between you, you don't have you can't be forced to testify against your spouse. I mean, you still can. And that's something it's not that you can't. It's that if you don't want to, if you're married to someone, if you don't want to testify about what the the two of you talked about in in bed, about what they did, you know, the the night of an incident that's important to a case, they don't have to. Um, When you add a third party. Like a recorded, you know, private phone company that you have to pay to talk to people uh, in jail and they tell you that it's recorded and that it may be listened to. You lose yeah. the privilege. The privilege right. no longer exists. Just in the same way that if, as an attorney, there's an attorney-client privilege. But if there's a third person in the room who's not an attorney and we're not working on the case together, there is no privilege anymore. Right. And right. and just for the, the benefit of listeners, too, the reason for that is there are certain relationships we want to encourage from a public policy perspective uh, to have the free 
flow of communication. Uh, one of those being uh, between your your uh, an attorney and their client. You want them to be able to speak freely to each other about anything and everything. There's a clergy privilege to speak to your 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 uh, religious spiritual uh, pastor. There's a, a privilege between your doctor. There are certain relationships, and there are exceptions to all of these, but there are certain relationships where we want people to feel like they can be as most honest. And one of those is in a, between two married people that they want to encourage them to be able to share this information. But you're right; one of the ways that that can be pierced is through uh, if it's over a public phone where it's being identified to them that they're being recorded. I imagine that these recordings are very similar to the ones that you and I have heard many, many, many times where every 30 seconds or so, a very loud voice is interrupting you saying this conversation is being recorded. So there is no uh, ambiguity about the fact that this is no longer a privileged conversation, which if these tapes are ever released, I'm sure we're going to hear that here. I want to say there's no mommy privilege. <laughs> right. I, I, when you when you call your mom from jail and it's recorded, there's no, I mean, well, there's no marital privilege either under those conditions, I would argue, but there's also, and that's the defense attorney. I wouldn't make the argument because I don't, I don't think legally it stands and I'm not going to make an argument just to make one. Um, but no, there's no mommy privilege. So talking to your mom from jail. Right. Not even right. close. Yeah, even putting aside the confessions to his wife, if he if he made the same confessions to his mom, there's nothing that applies there. Um, okay, so assuming these confessions do come in, uh, is that the end of it for him? I mean, to to in my view, and I don't want to kind of steal your thunder here, but that that really is sealing his fate if these confessions come in. What are your thoughts? because we don't know the contents I'm hoping if I were his attorney, which I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, one way or the other, I'm not for him or against him, but if he, if the defense attorneys heard things during the jail calls that were inconsistent with what they know to be true about the homicide, homicide. So like if he's confessing, but that can't be how things actually went. I don't think that's going to be the case, but I think that's what you're hoping for. Or that yeah. it's or that it's so generic that it's more just like he's being threatened into having to say it on the jail call. I don't right. know what he's going to say. Like there's a, another guy with a shank like to my neck saying, say it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. that somehow so the kind of this is. That need to and it sounds like they're kind of going down that path with this mental health thing that he, you know, they're they're trying to explain why this is in, in their view and their argument going to be a false confession. But if no one buys that, to me, the most powerful evidence that can be presented in a criminal court are words from the defendant's own mouth. And if that's short of them actually taking the stand and, and falling apart in cross-examination, if they're confessing something on a call, especially to someone like a family member, I can't, I there, there's very few arguments that would prevail to, to get past that. Well, imagine um, in the- Go in ahead. The- you know, in the um, you know public eye, we're also going to hear, I imagine, the responses of both his wife and mother to him, you know, presumably confessing yeah. their reactions to what he's telling them. You know, it's going to kind of make or break their public image, not that, you know, it's already tarnished, obviously, yeah. but I, yeah. I, I, I did read be very interesting to see what they have said. In yeah. response. I did read one report that the wife hung up. I think this was in the court documents as well, that the wife 
ended the conversation very quickly, which, to your point, probably lends to the credibility of the confession and her reaction to it that she likely believed it to be true. I mean, it doesn't sound like, at least from what we're hearing, that the she followed it up with, oh, stop playing around. You're always making awful jokes. But that She they, called him she, again. It happened multiple times. They kept talking. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, last point on this case. Um, this is a pretty big bombshell to release to the public beforehand. What do you? Th- what are your thoughts on the possible effects this could have on the jury pool? I guess we're starting with the presumption that the guy confessed. It's gonna. It's gonna make it that much harder to find jurors who are willing to be fair and impartial and that aren't. They can't prejudge the evidence. I, you know. It, it, I would imagine that now we're starting from a position. The presumption of innocence is sort of like you know, it's a lofty goal. It's not really real. I want it to be real sometimes, but it's really not like for, as emotional human beings, you know, to have the confessions out there. You're starting from a, a presumption of guilt as a defense attorney. All I would ask is that is that they give me the opportunity to kind of explain. And that the state, the prosecutors have overpromised what these actual confessions are. Again, I don't know the content. So depending right. on what he's actually saying, it's going to really make or break the possibility that they can defend the case if those are coming in. Yeah. Yeah. My my thought was that, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, they found a, a bullet casing that seems to have been forensically matched to a weapon on him. Uh, another thing to say that he was, you know, an eyewitness kind of placed a person similar in his description near that area at that time. All of that I could see you getting a jury pull of people who really haven't prejudged this. But if people are hearing that the man confessed it, I don't care what they're saying in Vaudeer. You're right. People are people. Presumption of innocence is is difficult to begin with. That it's really hard for them to kind of put that out of their mind and have a very, uh, you know, open open mind as far as going into this trial if they know that this man confessed. Now you also got to wonder the relationship between the attorneys and Richard Allen right now. I mean, if I was his attorney and I'm look and I'm listening to jail calls, I don't like to listen to jail calls. They're very annoying. <laughs> They're very annoying to listen to. I really don't enjoy them. Sometimes I don't even understand what I'm hearing. It's just too much. The, it's like, what are you, do, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. You're yeah, interfering it, with your own defense. Yeah. And I wonder this, what he said back. This is starting to turn into, uh, if it goes to trial, just a long plea, essentially. Just them doing their best to protect his rights. But it, it sounds like the the evidence is becoming more and more overwhelming. He's making that incredibly difficult, it sounds like. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Of his own doing. Yes. yes. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Finally, turning to M- Moscow, Idaho, where Idaho prosecutors filed a notice declaring their intention to seek the death penalty for the University of Idaho suspect Brian Koberger. Koberger has been charged with the stabbing deaths of Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Zena Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. The four students were killed in their off-campus home during the early hours of November 13, 2022. After weeks of public speculation and criticism surrounding the investigations, authorities apprehended Brian Koberger at his parents' home in Pennsylvania. Authorities allege that a knife sheath found at the murder scene, allegedly under one of the bodies, provided a DNA match for the defendant, which led to his subsequent indictment. Prosecutors allege that the killings exhibit several aggravating factors which could warrant the death penalty if Koberger is convicted. Among these aggravating factors, prosecutors cited the especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel nature of the killings and Koberger's alleged utter disregard for human life. The state of Idaho has not executed a prisoner since 2012. However, the state did pass legislation in March allowing the use of firing squads in the execution of prisoners. This move was prompted in part by a difficulty in obtaining the chemicals necessary for lethal injection. It is also believed that this case in particular was a reason for that change in legislation. A judge entered a plea of not guilty on Brian Koberger's behalf after he declined to enter a plea at a hearing last month. His trial is tentatively scheduled for October of this year, barring any delays. Uh, Rachel, how does the possibility of the death penalty, uh, now is that something that the prosecution is actively going to seek, change uh, the approach for both prosecutors and, and the defense in this case? It's going to be very difficult um, for the defense um, because by seeking the death penalty, and I feel like this has happened before, um, the prosecutors are really signaling guilt. And yeah. in fighting in the guilt versus you know not guilty phase by by fighting evidence that you would maybe fight during a normal trial where there's n- no death penalty on the table, it's important more to present your client in a somehow somehow in a sympathetic manner. I don't really know how you how, you can do that in front of the same jury that you're going to argue that he's not guilty in front of. This is assuming that they have the evidence to support their case. But I'm saying they're signaling to the jury that that they've got prosecutors have it like they say they do. And if they do, um, again, the, the defense is. I imagine Brian Coker is very involved in his defense. So a lot. And I because, you know, he studied criminal justice and he just strikes me as somebody who would want to be very, very involved. The death penalty is going to change his strategies here. It's, they're going to have yeah. to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now we're talking about something different. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you that um, strategically the way that they, because for listeners to understand that now that death penalty is on, on the table, a couple of big changes are going to take place. One, the jury itself has to be what's called death penalty qualified meaning that every single one of those jurors will be asked the question of if they felt that the circumstances were appropriate, 
would they be able to vote for death? And some people are just morally, politically, for whatever reason, opposed to that and will say no. Those people are not qualified from being on this jury just to begin with. So you're you're going to have a, a jury pool that naturally kind of skews more conservative, like you pointed out, and, and more pro-prosecution, arguably. So that's one thing. And then two, they're going to have um, two phases to the trial, which will be the guilt phase that you've talked about. And then if convicted, it'll go to a penalty phase with the same jurors where they will argue essentially whether or not he should be put to death. And you, what you're, what you're alluding to is this kind of uh, tightrope act now that the defense has to go through because to some extent they have to defend their client during the guilt phase, but at the same time preserve some cred- credibility to essentially yeah, beg yeah. for his life during the, the penalty phase. Um, and that's a real difficult task to do. And I, I, I have seen in some cases where the defense in the guilt phase will not really put on um, that much of a fight. I mean, they'll, they'll defend their client, but not as vociferous a fight you would think if the death penalty weren't on the table because they're pr- trying to preserve some credibility with the jurors. Um, I... I'm doing a lot of talking and not a lot of asking questions here, but do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that they go for broke in the guilt phase or do you think they do try to pull back a little bit to preserve some um, credibility, something to to be able to stand in front of the jurors with uh, during the penalty phase if it goes that far? Thus far, his attorneys have been pretty aggressive. Um, Yeah. That's why I don't know what's going to happen now. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I th- I think I think Idaho is different than some of these. There's guys like Nicholas Cruz, like um, James Holmes in the Aurora shooting. You know, neither of them got the. De- I mean, they sought the prosecutor sought the death penalty, and the jury decided against it in both of them. And it just takes one juror. I think that's important. So, yeah. in order for um, the death penalty to be imposed, all the entire jury has to unanimously decide for the death penalty. If one juror amongst them says, no, it's not a hung jury, then then they retry it. Right. They don't don't all have to agree um, that he shouldn't get the death penalty. I also, okay, so what we know about like Nicholas Cruz is that, you know, he had a lot of developmental issues, hit a lot of trauma, blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to go into his whole life, but it also, what I want to say about seeking the death penalty that sort of has the opposite effect is it ends up being a lot more about the suspect, the person who is convicted than about the victims, because it, because you're asking a jury to decide whether they should you know, live or die. So yeah. it kind of becomes like a parading of like why they're this way and how it's everybody else's kind of fault, which I I don't know. I don't know. I think Brian, Brian Koberger might love that. I don't know no. if he ha- I don't know if he has the same level of um it doesn't seem as though he has the same level of like cognitive issues and mental health issues. I know he had addiction, but he's not as, you know, as a character, he's not particularly sympathetic. Um, And, you know, this case rocked the nation. Um, Every parent who has a kid at college, I mean, just, I can't even imagine the fear. Um, So it'll be very interesting to see what actual evidence there is. The defense makes it sound like there's other DNA places yeah, know. I've I've heard them talk about that. I think that's a lot of kind of posturing. I I they're why they're, would you, they're why would I you could, promise that though? 
I, I, well, there was other DNA found in the house that that is to unidentified individuals, but it's a home. It's a college home. There's people in and out of that house all the time. Of course, they're going to find a bunch of unidentified DNA. They're going to find a bunch of DNA and it's unidentified if that person's DNA isn't already in the system for some reason. So it's, you know, to me, none of that shocking. I understand why the defense is kind of focusing in on it. They're trying to grasp at straws here. Um, but I think you make a really good point about, and it, important for people to understand too, that just because the jurors all can't agree on death doesn't mean you do it all over again. The default then becomes life without parole. So it's the, the case ends it regardless. So even if one juror says, I don't think we should give him the death penalty, it's not like this whole thing is declared a mistrial like we might see in the guilt phase. It just defaults to life without parole. Um, one more issue that's interesting now that death is on the table is how do you think this could affect a potential plea deal here? I don't think Brian Koberger is pleading guilty. <laughs> you're just you're just, that's just your gut. Yeah, it's my gut. He's here for the show. That's my you gut. might be right. You might be right. Um, I I have seen the death penalty be a a, a very strong motivator for individuals to plea to avoid that. Uh, but I also think, um, one, you're right, the defense has to be on board. And two, the prosecution has to be on board. And it might just be that they don't even want to offer something and other there's than that. death in this case. So we shall see. Uh, but last point on this whole case is there we're, there's a recent controversy where the University of Idaho has pushed to have the home, the house where the murders took place, demolished. Uh, the house was donated to the university after the murders, and it sits directly across um, the street from the campus. They're, they want this symbol of, of tragedy gone from their community. Understandable. At the same time, we haven't even had the trial yet. What are, what are your thoughts? Do you see any possible problems with this if they actually go through with the demolition? I don't know if either are any of the attorneys objecting. Well, the family members are, but strangely enough, both the prosecution and defense, my understanding, and I hope I'm, I'm, people will correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but is that they're not objecting. It's strange because out of, out of a lot of cases, I feel like this would be one that a jury view could be something that, you know, one of the sides might eventually want. So I would preserve. I would ask to preserve it, even if I didn't plan on using it, just because it's a you know it's for it to just be demolished before we resolve this case. I agree. I, th- I think it's. I think it's too soon. I understand that it's traumatizing to look at. I wish they could let. You know, I wish it could just disappear and there could be a park there and a memorial. But to make sure that they are able to prosecute the case to the fullest, I don't know why they wouldn't want to preserve the house. Yeah. It's very strange to me because, I mean, there's yeah. diagrams. People are spending all their time on diagrams on, on YouTube and TikTok. I've seen it all. You know, how we got from different rooms and the different floors and how they wouldn't, how the, how the other roommates didn't hear it because that was important yeah. too. So wouldn't you want well, the spe- acoustics and stuff? Course, I, I, I would think so too. And especially from the prosecutor's perspective, what I mean, you're right. Let's say they've got all the diagrams and 3D imaging and photographs you could ever want. And listen, the vast majority of cases are tried without ever doing a, 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 a view of the crime scene. So they may be going into this thinking of that, but wouldn't you 
want to also eliminate the argument that the defense might make of, hey, folks, you didn't even get to see the crime scene. Had you been able to see the crime scene, maybe things would have appeared differently. Maybe you would have understood this different. It just one more avenue of reasonable doubt that you might be able to cut off by preserving a piece of what could be potentially very valuable evidence. I would hate for that to become an issue later on. Yeah, I mean, it's just very strange that they would even like, you don't they don't get rid of evidence in cases before the case is resolved. No, and we're and not talking years down the line. We're talking several months, but long enough that you would think that they could hold off. But like I said, it hasn't been done yet. We'll see what ends up happening. Um, but in the meantime, that is our show. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Look me up on Instagram as underscore Rachel Kaufman. I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter. Um, RK Real Talk. I don't talk enough there, but um, yeah, both of those places. You can catch me here visiting Josh. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and please do. Uh, and I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>